You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Natalie Haynes on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called A Thousand Ships, and this is a must-read. It's a must-have for your uh, to-be-read pile, and I'm sure... When uh, you finish listening to this interview, you will agree with me. Uh, welcome to the show, Natalie. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Natalie, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? You know, I never have the right answer for this because I know that what you're supposed to say is I was a child and I was reading a book and um, I thought that's what I wanted to be. And the truth of it is, that I didn't really realize that people wrote books, or at least that people who were like me wrote books until embarrassingly late in my life. I feel marginally better about this because I interviewed Fran Lebowitz once for um, BBC Radio in the UK. And obviously she is, in my view, one of the great American uh, humorists. And I interviewed her and said, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? And she said, as soon as I realized that books weren't like trees and people made them, <laughs> I was like, that's the answer I should be giving. Damn it. Typical that she would find the perfect one. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I came to writing books quite late. I was already, a, I was a stand up comedian for a decade in the UK first, because I think maybe that just seemed sort of more manageable. I don't know why, because walking on stage in front of hundreds of people is quite frightening in lots of ways. Um, but you don't have to you don't have to write that many words, I guess. It's quite a manageable quantity, five minutes when you first start gigging and it you know eventually builds for like an hour. But that's still only, you know, a few thousand words, really, relative to writing a book, which is loads. So it, it took me a while to build my confidence. But I think I both always wanted to write a book and didn't believe I could write a book until I'd already written the first one, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And uh that's a that's a, a unique um, perspective that you only get from the other side of it. Uh, it, it it's it, it may sound strange to people. Well, um, what do you mean you didn't think you could do it till after you did it? You know, what was. Oh, my God, that's what, my whole career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course I can do that. And then frantically, you know, emailing somebody who already does it and going, how do I do this? That's my whole life. I don't understand how everyone else is. I assume everyone else just moves through the world completely calm, but maybe they're doing the same thing. I'm always saying, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, when do you need it? By Monday, no problem. I do it all the time with no idea how to fulfill that promise. That's so funny. That's so funny. Um, how did you how did you break into to journalism and, and broadcasting? What what was that path I like for you? Through stand-up. Um, because stand-up is, or at least it was, I think now it's it's probably become, I mean, certainly in the past year when it's been very difficult to open clubs and theatres, right. um, it's become a great deal more difficult to become a stand-up. But when I started in the late 1990s, um, it was a very egalitarian thing. I mean, it had all kinds of problems. It was incredibly you know, misogynistic. There were very few opportunities for people of colour. And so it wasn't a, a level playing field by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But 
ultimately, if you were funny, you could at least get a go. That didn't mean you weren't going to deal with prejudice from the, you know, circuit, from the audiences, but you could, you could be, you would get five minutes on a stage to prove that you were funny. Um, and so it was a, in, in some ways it was a terrifying business to get into. Um, and in some ways it, it was a very open business to get into. And, um, the UK has this, uh, has a fringe festival in Edinburgh in Scotland every August, um, which is a huge festival. So much comedy happens there. You know, comedians travel from literally all over the world, not just from uh, the UK, but from the US, from Australia, from New Zealand. Um, and so it's just an enormous kind of opportunity to be seen. And I did a show there in, God, I should know this, 2000 and I'm going to say two and just hope that it's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> to me, that feels like 20 minutes ago, but objectively, I acknowledge that can't be true. Um, but in 2002, I did my first sort of full-length solo show up in Edinburgh, and it was nominated for the Perrier Best Newcomer Award for, for comedy. Um, and I think I was the first woman to be nominated for that um, because comedy was quite a was and is quite a patriarchal business. Um, but I think that got me onto people's registers as being somebody that they should be paying attention to, talent scouts and bookers and things like that. And because of that, um, the BBC recorded a I don't know, like a five minute chunk of my show and broadcast it on the radio. And because of that, a TV booker heard that and mailed and said, would you come and do this topical show that we're doing? It's every night. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll come along. Um, and because of that, I was on air um, doing sort of political discussion with a man named Danny Finkelstein, who is now Lord Finkelstein, because welcome to the UK. This is how we like to do things. <laughs> um, and uh, he was the um, editor of the comment pages, the op-ed, opinion editorial pages of the London Times. And one of his long-standing funny correspondents, a man named Alan Corrin, was very ill, as it turned out he would be dying. Um, and he said, would you come and write Alan Corrin's column for a couple of weeks? And in the fashion which has seen me to where I am today, I went, yeah, sure, absolutely. When do you need it? By Wednesday? Okay, fine. And then promptly mailed everyone I knew who worked in journalism. I went, how do I write a column? <laughs> what do you start with? So yeah, I, what, it, what I needed to be was funny, which I was. Um, and actually, of course, you can gain the other skills. I knew how to write relatively tight material for the stage because, you know, comedians write more carefully in lots of ways than pretty well anyone, I think, except poets and advertising copywriters because they're the you know, advertising copywriters are paying for the word uh, per word and poets need scansion and you know rhythm and things like that but comedians need that too so you're incredibly careful about how you write you're constantly editing yourself um, because you have to and so actually I was pretty well placed to to write op-ed I wouldn't ever describe myself as a sort of want to put a phrase like a proper journalist who goes and does you know, investigative journalism and reports on things. I'm definitely not that. I've done very little of it. But in terms of being able to write a sort of set piece for a newspaper, yeah, no problem. When do you need it? An hour, no problem at all. You know, we've seen um, throughout history that some of the most potent truth comes out uh, in comedy, and especially in stand-up comedy. There's there's something about coupling um, truth and... uh, and and sometimes very hard to swallow truths yes. um, with laughter that that makes that makes it palatable in some weird way. But you know, if you if you really want to know where the pulse, um, you know, uh, is, go see a comedy show. That that's where you can really get 
uh, to the truth a lot of times. Um, what do you think there? What do you think it is about the connection between getting people to laugh and and then being able to to speak the truth about something? I think it's. I think humor is intrinsically quite cathartic. Annoyingly, for um, people like me in particular, um, <laughs> it's uh, the case that we have half of Aristotle's poetics, the half that he wrote about tragedy and how tragedy, you know, by watching it um, and seeing these sort of terrible traumatic events play out on stage, we reach a state of catharsis in which we feel better about our own lives because we've watched these very much worse lives. I'm, you know, obviously extrapolating, but I'm assuming that almost none of your listeners will have an experience to rival that of Oedipus, for example. Let's just hope. Um, (laughs) Or, you know, the chances of any one of us getting torn limb from limb by a mother who has in a kind of drug-filled religious frenzy mistaken us for a mountain lion, uh, Euripides the Bacchae. Slender. I'm hoping slender. So, of course, we have a cathartic experience watching tragedy, but infuriatingly, the half of the poetics which he wrote about comedy doesn't survive. The search for that text is the MacGuffin in the Umberto Eco novel, The Name of the Rose, uh, which you may remember also as a film with uh, Sean Connery. Um, And so um, I think we often don't think about comedy in in the same sense, but I think if if Aristotle's work had survived, perhaps we would take comedy more seriously because for him, for Aristotle, there's no difference really, I think, between the catharsis that we achieve from watching tragedy, seeing these sort of much worse events than our lives um, dramatized, and watching comedy, you know, seeing things which are intrinsically kind of sillier than our lives, people in all kinds of scrapes, you know, for whom things go terribly wrong, but ultimately there is a, a very low risk of things being really awful it's comedy you know we know as we even when we watch a really harrowing moment in a comedy we know that it'll probably all turn out fine that's how comedy usually works um and so we reach that cathartic point in the same way and i think the idea of of truth in particular comedians have that have have a sort of um it's like their secret superpower is is the ability to tell a truth as they perceive it it's not necessarily objectively true but they're version of what is true they can offer that to an audience and they have the the status and the microphone to make an audience listen now you might not agree with a comedian um you might not agree with their viewpoint you might not find them funny you might not like their jokes but people do still listen that's why you know historically uh, authoritarian governments lock up comedians it's because there's something very powerful in ridicule if you're laughing at someone you're not afraid of them right and so I think that that kind of power, you know, dates, we can date it back at the very least to court jesters, you know, who were prepared to laugh at kings. And it, it's not nothing, you know, that that power, that refusal to be cowed by authority is not nothing. Natalie, in talking with you, um, the, the classics are ingrained in your your conversation. And this is something that you uh, obviously feel passionate about and uh, is a uh, a topic that that you are um, comfortable with. Um, your first book that you published, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Uh, first off, um, how did you come to love the classics as we think of them? And what uh, what instigated the this first book, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life? Um, I love classics because I had a brilliant teacher um, at school. Um, and I mean, um, high school, not even um, university school. Uh, so I was super lucky. I had really, really good teachers from the get-go. I started learning Latin at 12, which is unusually, wow. I know that to, 
an American audience, the whole of the UK seems a bit like Hogwarts. And I do understand that. But <laughs> even by the sands of the UK, that is a particularly Hogwartsy episode in anyone's life. So I started Latin at 12 and ancient Greek at 14. Um, it's a mystery that I had any lunch money at all, to be honest with you, <laughs> the whole time I was at school. It's lucky I was tall. Um, and I had great teachers who were very inspiring. And I think maybe the difference between learning modern languages, because I did French as well, um, and I am partly Belgian. Um, but in, in terms of the UK, uh, if you study a language like French at school, you get to do kind of conversational French. So you get to, you know, ask, where's the train station, please, et cetera. And that's really useful and practical and fine. But if you do Latin or Greek, you get to read a big chunk of epic poetry <laughs> in which, you know, sea snakes attack the children of an angry priest. And it's like, well, which of these is going to appeal to me more at the age of 15? Sea snakes all day long. Um, so I was super lucky that I got to study them at school. I, I went on and did my degree at Cambridge. Um, Cambridge, England. Uh, I have to specify, don't I? Not um, uh, brainy science, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, but, but yeah, brainy classics, Cambridge, England. And so I got to study there too. And so classics has been part of my life for the absolute, you know, lo longest time. It's been, I was a classicist before I was a comedian. Um, I wasn't a very good classicist before I was a comedian, but you know, you could argue that I wasn't a very good comedian for a while. I <laughs> took a while to learn how to do either of these things and you have to learn them by doing. I suppose. And as for Ancient Guide, it, it came from a, um, a newspaper article that I wrote for the London Times. Um, and at the point when, oh, I'm going to say Gordon Brown became Prime Minister of the UK, having taken over from Tony Blair, they asked me if I would write a, an essay comparing modern political leaders to ancient political leaders. Um, and I said, yeah, sure. When do you need it? By Wednesday. Um, and, and wrote that. And it was one of those essays that just makes people write into the paper for weeks afterwards, you know, generally to go, you know, dear the editor, Ms. Haynes would appear to believe. Oh, dear. Um, but, you know, generally people wanted to say, oh, I completely agree when you say X is like this ancient emperor, but actually I think they're even more like this ancient and so on. So it got this huge debate going in the letters pages. And um, it was a very small step from there to be able to sell the book because, you know, generally, I think the problem with classics at the time and that book came out in 2010 in the UK um, was that people didn't think classics was was relevant or that they wouldn't be interested. And it's like, well, look, you know, look how many people find it interesting. Look how many people are kind of arguing over it. And so, yeah, it was just good luck, really, that the, the paper asked for the piece and it wrote itself, really. So after realizing that uh, that there was a a place a, uh, a a hunger almost in modern audiences for um, the classics and for a, maybe a, a new view on the classics, um, did you did you find that that you had a a particular voice? Um, what did it did it ever strike you that you know? And you you kind of talked earlier about. Kind of stumbling into things and then realizing after the fact, oh, oh, I may need to learn how to do this when you've you know just done it. Um, did you realize that oh, I you know I do have a unique voice and I do have a unique perspective on this topic that uh, that maybe the world needs and or, or the world wants or or the world uh, will at know, least pay for or, sufficiently it, for me to pay my mortgage. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, did, did you did you realize your your kind of place in all of this? No, not for ages. Um, I, because I think maybe it's a particular weakness of mine, but I wonder if it's a weakness of people in 
general who have that slight imposter syndrome where you kind of sure. think, I can't believe I'm getting away with this, is it doesn't occur to you to value the things that you're good at because you tend to be focusing on the things that you can't do. So what you tend to do is look at the world thinking, everyone else knows exactly what they're doing and I'm just getting away with this until they find out and throw me out <laughs> on the street. And so it took me a while to realize that actually it was quite it was quite an unusual combination of, of things that I had in my brain. It's like I can be funny about these things which are incredibly erudite and serious. You know, I'm when I write about um, Greek tragedy or Greek myth now, you know, I will have gone back to fragments of Greek poetry in the original Greek in order to, you know, find out more about it and tra I'll translate them myself. And it's quite an unusual thing to be able to do that and simultaneously not to be a super serious academic writing academic texts to be read by pretty well only other people in academia. Um, but it, no, I didn't realize until quite a, a long time afterwards. And I have a radio show in the UK called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, which I think you can get on Audible in the US. Um, but if your listeners are listening anywhere where BBC Sounds exists, then it's there for free. Um, I think you probably have to subscribe to Audible, but I'm not quite sure. Um, and that was a, a way of kind of combining stand-up, which I had obviously done for 10, 12 years, and the ancient world, knowledge of the ancient world, ancient history and, and biography are, are basically what the program is. And I mean, it took ages to sell it, even to the BBC, which is pretty keen on, on supporting completely bonkers projects like that. It still took three or four years to persuade them that there would be an audience for this. We get 1.6 million listeners per episode. Um, and, and, and it's broadcast in a country which only has 65 million people in it. So it's like, yeah, you know, again, there was a market for it, but who would have guessed from beforehand, you know, when I was so optimistic <laughs> in my 30s, going around knocking on the doors of commissioning editors, going, hi, it would be really cool if we could make this program about classics and it'll be funny, I swear. And they were like, yeah, Natalie, thanks very much. What's over there? Slams door. Um, and so it just took ages to kind of persuade people. But then once I was doing it, it was one of those things where people went, well, yeah, of course. This would do, but I'm still astonished that when I do the live version of that, which obviously I haven't been able to do very much in the past twelve months, um, but I I generally tour, you know, a book for for a year, sometimes for longer, uh, all over the world. Uh, when A Thousand Ships came out here in May 2019, and I took it that year alone to Australia, to New Zealand, um, around the UK, uh, Cyprus at one point, um, and so even then I was kind of noticing that people were that very young people were coming, teenagers, and often they were um, teenagers who were just really nerdy and who liked the radio show. And sometimes they were young women bringing their moms or grandmothers to the show because, um, you know, they, they all listened to it together or they read the book. And it became clear to me in a way that I couldn't possibly have predicted that it was becoming a kind of intergenerational thing. And that that's how I get lots of email from grandparents saying their grandchildren introduced me to them or them or they introduced their grandchildren to me and now they're listening to the show together in lockdown you know on, in different parts of the country and it's incredibly moving because who knew you know who knew that that would ever happen speaking of imposter syndrome um we've done more than a thousand episodes of this show and I've, I've you talked a lot. Know how to do it yet? Just asking. No, no. I'm, I know. I'm, That's I still... the thing. It makes no difference how no. much you do it. You're like, well, I haven't been fired yet, so I guess I should do it. <laughs> Why can't we get over it? It's crazy. 
But, you know, the the vast majority of the authors that I've had on the show talk about this imposter syndrome. And it's it's definitely I think it's a it's a part of the human condition. It's it it's not uh, just writers who deal with this. But, you know, there's only been a handful of people that did not struggle with imposter syndrome. And I honestly don't trust those people. I like there's just something students when I go and speak in schools and I feel bad now because it, it might be on the record. Who denied imposter syndrome on your show? So let's hope nobody goes through the archives. But I, well, I didn't I name names. And that's what I always say to kids: is don't worry if you feel like you can't do it, because the people you need to worry about are the ones who are absolutely sure they can, because right. those people are basically dangerous and insane. Because right. we definitely all can't do it. We're all winging it and hoping for the best and trying really hard. And I genuinely believe that although I understand imposter syndrome can be very destructive, it does also make you very careful. It means that you're always going, I need to ask for advice. I need to get help. I need to, you know, study harder to make sure I know how to do this. It makes me, I think it's, a, it's the flip side of being kind of perpetually curious and wanting to learn is the sense that there's still so much left to learn. So I completely agree with you. The people who think, oh, yeah, no, I totally know how to do this. Do you? Do you really? I'm extremely <laughs> skeptical that that's the case. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience. And also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. Well, and hopefully that uh, imposter syndrome kind of goes hand in hand with staying hungry and and yes. and always feeling there's more to prove. Maybe "prove"s not the right word, but there, there's more to do. There's more to accomplish. Uh, more yeah, to prove, yeah. maybe to just to our own selves. But I, yeah. I think that hunger and that imposter syndrome go hand in hand. Um, speaking of going hand in hand, that you're too. Um, loves and life appear to be the classics and humor. Um, how do you feel like these two dovetail and where do they kind of collide in your life? Well, mainly they collide on stage. My novels are much less funny, much more serious, much sadder than I am on stage because I suppose I am both of those people. You know, I am sure. somebody who can experience really profound emotions of upset of grief and you know stress and uh, negativity and all of those things and I think that's probably true of almost all comedians just small sidebar um but it doesn't mean that I don't find things funny even things which are personally incredibly upsetting to me I will make a joke in the middle of you know a, a breakup in the middle of a row at a funeral I can't help it it's like a a sort of glitch in my brain I guess but at the same time I think 
that's sort of okay. You know, funny people don't move through life with nothing bad happening to them. Um, And so you'll find in my novels, I think, that sometimes there are moments where they are quite funny. And sometimes there are moments where things are just devastating. And sometimes there are moments where those two things kind of gel. And you go, oh, yeah, no, okay. You know, terrible things are happening to somebody who is intrinsically, you know, a funny person. That's that that is realistic that's how things are but for me personally it's mainly on stage i can uh, i love I've, it's been the worst thing for me um about about lockdown um i i mean don't get me wrong i have missed my loved ones <laughs> i should, I should get, that, <laughs> get that early on. i really really miss you all and yet i really miss being on stage <laughs> so i miss audiences i miss interacting with them i miss the act of creating something with an audience that only exists once you know just that one night that's what i love most about stand up in its sort of pure form is that it it just exists between the end of my toes and uh, or the end of my microphone and the the toes of the people in the front row you know this this magical thing that we create just for that and then it's gone forever um and i love making that and sharing it with people um and so yeah it's been extremely hard this this past year not being able to do that almost at all um but I can't deny it, you know, writing books obviously gives me um, a different pleasure because you get to create something that is not so transitory. Um, and, you know, I spent, yeah, nearly 12 years as a stand-up. And in the end, the kind of only making things that were so ephemeral, it wasn't, it wasn't satisfying to me anymore. I had loved it and I still love it as, as part of my life, but I couldn't have it as my whole life. I wanted to make things that had a bit more permanence. And, you know, you look at a shelf full of books that you wrote and you made a thing, you know, you can see that and register it and it's incredibly satisfying. Um, so I guess that they have to kind of exist in harmony for me. I would be really sad to bring out a book. I mean, I did bring out a book in the UK called Pandora's Jar, which I think will come out in the US in spring 22, yeah. I think. Um, but I wrote, I wrote the the last chunk of that at the beginning of last year, a year ago. Um, but then it came out in October. So I've only done one live event for it and everything else has been online. Um, and, oh, it is, it is hard not seeing audiences and it's lovely getting the feedback. And of course it means that when I do an event online, people can come from all over the world and that's fantastic. And yet I just, I miss the sense of creating something with a live audience. I always will um, until we're allowed back to do it again and it's safe. Your your new book that just released here in the states, at least a thousand ships, um, has had uh, quite a journey uh, uh, already. (laughs) Yeah, even though we're just discovering it here in the states, um, it's been out for a couple of years in the UK, and as you said earlier, it's kind of journeyed all over the world. Um, Tell me, what was it that uh, that first uh, inspired this book for you? What was that first spark? that uh that let you know this was a story you needed to tell it was i think it's the only book i've ever had a proper light bulb moment for um and i'd written two earlier novels which were both basically retellings of greek tragedies um one called the amber fury in the u.s it was called the furies which is set in the contemporary world um and one called the children of jocasta um, which was a retelling of the Theban story, the Oedipus myth, as we might think of it, um, from the perspectives of Jocasta and um, her daughter Ismene. And so I'd looked at, at telling Greek myth 
um, and particularly at Greek tragedy, um, from one or two different perspectives. And then I was walking home from town. I walk a lot. I run a lot. I walk a lot. I'm happiest on foot. Um, mm. And I was walking home from town, and I was going past the running track in the um, that's next to the park on the way to my home. And I thought, you know what I'd like to do next? I'd like to do the Trojan War. And I took like three more steps. And I was like, but like the whole war. And I'd like to tell it from all the women's perspectives. I could do like all the Trojan women stuck in Troy who were basically you know, hostages for 10 years, under siege for 10 years. And I do all the Greek women who are waiting for their husbands and sons and fathers to come home. And I could do all the goddesses. Who's, and I was like, wait, could I? Could I? And I nearly ran home. And, and I was kind of frantically Googling, thinking somebody must have done this already. And I was just sitting at my desk going, is this mine? Is it mine? Can I have it? Is it mine? And as it turned out, you know, there are an awful lot of women in uh, ships um, but not all of them. I, I couldn't make them all be in it because there are too many. But I thought, how many times have we seen stories of the Trojan War which focus on one man or another man um, or several men or maybe one woman or one household? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take it out big. But I was an embarrassingly long way through before I realized um, that I was trying to write an, an epic uh, you know, that I wanted it to be right in the midst of the action. This is what the, the Roman poet Horace describes epic as being. We come into things in medias race, he says, in the midst of things. Um, and so I really wanted to write this, this story that kind of threw you in. That So the, the first big chapter of, of A Thousand Ships is like an action movie, I hope, um, as Creusa, who you could read more about, or actually rather a great deal less about in book two of Virgil's Aeneid. Um, where she has a very small cameo role, which is basically to go, oh, but be careful, and then disappear like a, a 90s girlfriend in a Hollywood action film. Um, uh, does she have any other things to say? No, just tell him to be careful, and then, okay, great. Um, and so I wanted to give her some backstory, but I hope that it means that you properly get kind of thrown into the, the fall of the city of Troy, you know, because I thought, well, that's the bit that everyone knows is the Trojan horse. So I'm going to start with the horse, and then I'm going to move the story forwards i'm going to show the consequences of the fall of the city of what happens to all the women um, who are in troy all the women who are waiting for their husbands to come home to greece um, and i'm also going to show the causation of that war and how it, how how the war is lost for the trojans or won for the greeks how the war is fought on both sides how the war began and you know and take it further back and further back and i thought i'm going to tell the consequences timeline forwards i'm going to tell the causation timeline backwards and I'm going to start with the horse and that'll be fine. And I wrote a page which basically said that and sent it to my publishers and said, this is what I want to do next. And to their enormous and enduring credit, they went, okay, and left me to it. <laughs> Instead of going, you want to do what now? You want to change voice every chapter? Are you sure? They were so good. And they just said, yeah, okay, do it. You can do that. All right, thank you. And then, you know, 10, 11 months later, I sent them the first draft and they were like, yep, that'll do. So, yeah. That's what is it about the the Trojan War um, that is so um, uh, that that uh, is so important about the time that we live in now? Why is it important to look back on this story and how do we see uh, threads of this, you know, coming into our modern life? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is one of the great foundational myths of of European culture and therefore also, of course, of um, 
American culture because we have fed each other's art and culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is one of the great foundational stories. Um, I've been trying for years to sell to the BBC a program where we get to go to all the different Greek named towns and cities in the States, you know, go to all your Athenses and Spartas and places like that to say, look, you know, that these stories don't belong to the old world with heavy inverted commas. They're, they're everyone's. These stories have stretched everywhere. Um, and so I think, you know, this, this story of, I mean, stories of war always extremely unhappily are relevant because there is always war. Um, and so when A Thousand Ships first came out, somebody asked me, a journalist asked me and said, you know, how is this relevant to, uh, to the modern times? And it's like, well, dude, I would love it if, if we didn't need stories about women being trafficked in the aftermath of a war. I would very right. much rather my book were irrelevant. <laughs> I'd, I'd be fine with that, honestly. But unfortunately, in the actual world, that's still happening. It's happening all the time. And I thought the idea of looking at a war from the women's perspectives felt like a very 21st century interaction with the Trojan War, I suppose, because I thought those are voices that we haven't often heard. You know, we focused on the, the male heroes who fight on the battlefield. And I felt very strongly. I saw a, a really brilliant but extremely harrowing documentary at the Cannes Film Festival, which I was reviewing um, films for the BBC years and years ago. And I saw this film about um, restorative justice in Rwanda, where, of course, there was a, a horrific genocide, as though there could be any other kind of genocide. Sorry, but you see my point. Um, right. And these women were being asked, essentially, who had been the survivors of this horrific war, but also had been um, asked to, therefore, in order to allow their country to rebuild, had been asked to essentially forgive their attackers so that everybody could carry on living alongside one another. And it was an extraordinary and very upsetting watch. Because, of course, what you want to say is, well, you know, look, these people have decided to forgive rather than, you know, live with this pain. And, you know, now they're being able to move forwards. And what, what you actually saw, at least what I actually saw, was women who realized that it, it didn't matter if they forgave these men or not, because they were going to have to live next door to them, whatever. So really, their opinions just weren't, weren't valuable. And I felt that they were, they were being asked to do something unimaginable. And they were doing it because they didn't really have a choice. Um, and and that was in my mind almost the whole way through writing this book, truthfully, um, for all its um, bookishness, for all its classical scholarship and all of the things that um, people notice in it, that it, that's the sort of hidden hidden part of this book's inspiration was this extremely uh, difficult and, um, and devastating film about a very contemporary war. Um, and so I suppose that was, that was in my mind really all the way through it. And I think, um, although sometimes the book is, is lighthearted, um, sometimes it goes into territory, which is quite whimsical. Um, and then it, it always comes back, I hope, to this beating heart, which is, you know, what happens, a war doesn't only happen on the battlefield, what happens when it spills out? You know, what happens if the people who are the victims of war aren't the people who die of it, but they're the people who survive it, but have lost everything? In the case of the Trojan women, they even lose their freedom. So their husbands, fathers, brothers, sons have been killed, and also they are now enslaved. And that is just a, that's a side of the story that I felt we didn't see very much of. You know, if you look at the Wolfgang Peterson movie, Troy, um, I don't necessarily recommend that you do. I found it quite 
boring, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> then, you know, we get to see beautiful Brad Pitt being beautiful. And, and actually, I think they do him quite well as Achilles because he's very, very quick, which, you know, is always what Homer says of him. He's swift-footed Achilles. Um, and so we see that, you know, as an as a intrinsically heroic thing. But it's, it, it probably doesn't feel that heroic if you're on the receiving end of his, of his killing sprees. Um, or right. if your if your loved one was or is, so it was very much a question of saying, well, what does this what does this story look like if we look at it from another perspective? And I felt like I'd done that in quite a focused way with the Children of Jocasta, um, that the story of the Theban conflict. You know, you can look at them from pretty much any angle, and they stand up because it's such an extraordinary story. And even in the ancient world, this is true of all myth. Um, these stories are being told in completely contradictory and different ways because they're being told across the Greek world, you know, by multiple storytellers, you know, across generations. So you end up with, with stories that, that don't, there's no original version. There's just lots of different early versions. We have no idea which one came first. And, and I knew that the story would stand up to whatever I could do to it because it's survived perfectly well for, you know, 3000 years nearly. And I felt the same way with the Trojan War. It's like, well, you know, there's a, there's a version of the, of the story of Helen and um, Paris, Helen of Troy, as we call her, but she starts out life as Helen of Sparta. Obviously, otherwise it would be a very short war. Um, <laughs> and there's a version that dates back at least as far as Homer um, to the very early seventh, probably the eighth century BCE, so very nearly three thousand years ago, in which Helen doesn't go to Troy at all; she goes to Egypt, and it's an image of her, an erdolon is the word in Greek, which is created by the gods but made out of air, literal air. That goes to Troy instead. The war is fought in exactly the same way. Um, but Helen is never there. She's completely blameless. And yet she is still derided as this sort of terrible, slutty adulteress who ruins everything for everyone. And I kind of think, well, when, when there's a counter myth that's nearly, as, that's nearly 3,000 years old, that's as old as the myth, then you, know, you really can just pick your way through these stories if you're prepared to dig around and hunt them out. And work out which which version you want to tell, which version you think sings to a, a contemporary audience. Mine focuses on the women because I am one. It's the twenty first century. I think women's voices are being heard in ways they haven't always been. Um, and so, you know, of course, my version was going to focus on that part of the story. But there are plenty more um, perspectives that haven't been heard or haven't been heard as much. So, you know, these stories are still ripe to be rediscovered. They're full of archetypes and drama and you know they're the beginning of everything in storytelling terms and in lots of ways for many of us even Aeschylus the fifth century BC tragedian described his plays as slices from the banquet of Homer so people have been slicing up Homer for a long old time but all right to do it again there's a lot to take away from a thousand ships and uh there's so much in this book but when when people finish the book and they close that back cover, what do you hope they're left with? Um, I hope that they are left with a sense that they needed to be told this story, you know, that whatever they knew about the Trojan War, and I don't mind if it's nothing, you don't have to have a degree in classics to read this book. I wrote it for everyone, not for just nerds, although I'm obviously always writing for nerds because they are my people. Um, I also <laughs> wanted people to be able to come to the Trojan War brand new to this. And so if the only things you know about the Trojan War are that Achilles had a heel and that the Trojans had a horse, you should be fine. Um, so I hope people can, can come to the end of the book and think, I didn't know that. You know, and I feel like I've experienced a, a way of looking at a story I either 
didn't know very well or only knew a part of or, or didn't know at all. And that I've, I've heard voices that I don't normally hear. I hope that's what people take away from it. Well, Natalie, I love the book and I love your Thanks. take on, uh, on familiar stories and some stories that we think we're familiar with and realize that we're not so familiar with when we really start digging in. And I love that you are shining a light on that. Um, if people are just learning about you, um, where can they find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing? Um, I am Official N. Haynes on Twitter. I am Natalie Haynes, stand-up classicist on Facebook. I have no idea what I am on Instagram. I pay a young person to do it. Um, I don't understand pictures. I can't help it. I'm good at other things. Shut up. Um, and the website is nataliehaynes.com. So um, you can find the radio show or podcast um, on Audible or BBC Sounds. Um, you can find, last year I made a set of short films about uh, Ovid poems, uh, the Ovid poems called the Heroides, um, which obviously I made so that we could hashtag them Ovid, not COVID. Um, and those are all lurking around on um, my Facebook page and you can find links to them on Instagram and on Twitter. So um, depending what you want, if you want to hear more women from the ancient world, those are all the best places to find them. Um, otherwise, you have to be patient until Pandora's jar comes out in the US next year. And then after that, there's a novel about Medusa, which I have got to write more words off. Otherwise, there won't be. <laughs> so, ah. Well, the book is called A Thousand Ships. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find it. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thanks um, for we're having me. It's been I'm such recommending I'm recommending this book to everyone and You're I so hope lovely. that uh, and uh, I hope that lots of people find it. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you.